Hi, everyone. Welcome to White Coats of the Roundtable. My name is Mike Asbeck, and I'm joined, as always, by John McDonald. We're a healthcare podcast focused on career development, non-clinical careers, and burnout prevention. Well, John, we've got a really exciting episode, and as per usual, whenever we have a guest, I, I always don't like to have them waiting in the wings. So let's dive right into introducing our guest today, and I'm going to turn it over to you to give the intro and give her bio. Tracy Bingman, the Money PA helps clinicians land the biggest raises of their careers. From the depths of healthcare burnout, Tracy has healed and grown to become a unicorn PA with a job she loves, with abundant time, money, and energy. She slashed her work hours from 60 to 24 per week and tripled her hourly income while practicing clinically as a PA. On the PA is in a podcast, Tracy recently celebrated 80,000 downloads as she works to redefine success as a physician assistant or physician associate. A thought leader on burnout, boundaries, work optional, financial freedom, and how to negotiate as a PA. Tracy's helping PAs to earn more money, work less hours, and ultimately become unicorn PAs too. Tracy, thanks for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. Let me start off by saying, what do we miss? What else do you want people to know about you before we move in, into our conversation? I, I've really been thinking a lot lately about how we are people who happen to be providers of healthcare. We're not providers of healthcare. That's not our entire identity. Um, and it's taken me more than a decade to sort of detangle who I am from what I do. And so I just want to put that bug in the ear of anyone listening that when you're at a party and you're introducing yourself and you say, hey, I'm Tracy. I'm a PA. You could also just say, I'm a super interesting, passionate person who loves skiing. You don't have to identify with what you do for work. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I, I that's something that I find in many conversations when I sit in front of somebody and I'm introducing myself, taking that step and saying, what do I want to say? Do I have to say I'm a pharmacist? Do I have to say it's it's something that we do need to practice? I, I, I I'm catching what you're putting down. Yeah, I find another thing that when I introduce myself to people, um, they will ask if I have kids and I have not one, not two, but five children. And that becomes the most notable, the most interesting thing about me. Like I get, you just did it, John. You're like, your eyes bugged out. Like, holy moly, that's so many humans. And I'm like, I am so much more than the mom to those kids, though. We both have four um, and we both have four boys. So everybody's eyes at in today's age, when people say they have more than two kids, they're like, you have 12? What? <laughs> well, let's start. Uh, let's transition into the topic of the day. So, Tracy, the thing that we are really excited to talk about is we want to use today to talk about opportunity cost in healthcare. And I think this is a, a really fascinating topic. And it's one that I think we have not really talked about yet on the show, John. So, before we dive into it, I want to at least just define opportunity cost just to make sure that we're not leaving any listeners behind. So the idea the, of opportunity cost is that anytime you have something that you're investing, so time, money, energy, whatever it may be, there's an opportunity cost that's there because that same resource, whether it be your time, your money, 
um, could have been put into other things. So the example in healthcare that I always like to think of, and certainly I want to hear your examples as well from both of you, is physician training. So physicians have incredible opportunity costs because they spend 12 to 15 years of their, you know, the primacy of their life in training, making no money as a medical student or making very little money as a resident. In turn, we pay physicians very well to to compensate them for that opportunity cost, but there's still a, an incredible trade-off that comes with that. I'd love to talk today just about opportunity cost in medicine, the benefits, the downsides, and kind of take a really raw um, and honest look at that. So I, I'd love your thoughts on that from either of you. I'll say, first of all, that when I went into pharmacy uh, as a young kid, uh, I thought about the money. Uh, let's be honest, a lot of us probably thought, I'm going to have all the bukus of dollars to buy Mercedes and Rolexes you know, when I'm out of school. Um, but what you come to find out quickly is there is a true opportunity cost that you see in real time where a lot of your friends who maybe they had a degree that only took them four years or so and they started making money quickly, uh, you were kind of left in the dust of it. You had some room to make up. And then the opportunity cost of having spent so much more money in school, uh, you have that much more to make up uh, when comparing yourself with other people that you, you graduate with in high school or even some of your colleagues. So yeah, it became quickly noticeable that money is not necessarily what you imagined it was going to be when you started this this uh, journey. Yeah, absolutely. I think I have seen the same in, in my career. And when I was deciding what I wanted to do, I knew I was interested in science and math, and I knew I wanted to talk to people. Sorry, John. I did job shadow some pharmacists, and I just decided that was absolutely positively not for me. My oldest sister is a pharmacist. Uh, so she was going to pharmacy school. My parents said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, a pharmacist, of course. And they said, what does a pharmacist do? And I said, I have absolutely no idea. I don't know. Um, so I went and shadowed some. And I wanted to be more like at the bedside taking care of people. So then we were left with this like medical school versus PA school. Um, and I looked at the cost of years and dollars and, you know, what age I would be when I graduated um, residency, you know, if I wanted to go to a fellowship, all of those things when I was considering physician versus PA. And I bought the myth that my mom inadvertently sold me that being a PA would automatically guarantee a better work-life balance, right? So she was like, you don't have to be the physician, right? You can just be the PA. You can just be the PA and, you know, less liability, a better schedule, spoiler alert, you have the same schedule as your physician colleagues. You make less money and you have the same exact liability as your physician colleagues because in many places we're functioning as independent providers. So, you know, if I could go back and do it again, I don't think I would change anything. But also, if you're in it and you hate it, do not let the fact that you've invested your time and energy and training to become where you are in your career to hold you back from making some pivot, right? Pivot was the word of the year for like the whole universe a couple of years ago. And everyone's like, where are you pivoting to? Well, first of all, only pivot if you're unhappy, otherwise just grow. And second of all, pivoting doesn't mean that the time and energy that you spent getting to where you are was wasted. All of that can help serve you in wherever you are going. So Tracy, I think you're touching on something very interesting there. And we started the conversation talking about maybe the opportunity cost with physician training as it relates to time or income. 
but you're alluding to the opportunity cost of just healthcare careers being, I think, incredibly demanding, whether that be the amount of hours worked, the the emotional toll that it takes. And you're right, we've seen this through the pandemic. We burnout of high, of healthcare providers or healthcare professionals was at all time highs, and it was difficult. Obviously, everyone else was working from home, and healthcare providers were still going in and uh, exposing themselves to illness at times. So I'd love to have you maybe expand or touch on that more of your thoughts on opportunity cost of a healthcare career as it relates to burnout, because I do think that burnout is at higher rates in healthcare than most industries. And you've already touched on it a little bit, but I'd love to give you some time to, to maybe go further on that. Yeah. So in my experience personally, and in all of the research that I've done investigating burnout, burnout is not a benign process. So burnout is not something that happens in isolation. It's not just, I get burned out. I don't feel passionate about my career anymore. I feel a little lackluster and then I fix it. So when I was burned out, it cost me time with my kids, connection with my spouse, the ability to engage in activities that bring me joy, friendships, because I was in survival mode and I didn't have the time or capacity to lean into some of those relationships that mattered most to me. And actually, when I was burned out, it was my then two-year-old daughter calling me stupid that made me realize that what I was doing at work and the rate at which I was burning the candle was unsustainable. Um, So, you know, clinically burnout happens when your stressors are higher than your ability to cope with them. So as scientists, we get that, right? The input is more than the output. We are overflowing with stress. We're not coping. We're not managing that stress well. Um, And that sounds very clinical. So when I was burned out, I felt like I can't keep going like this. I am working so hard. I just don't know how this is sustainable. And still, I was questioning if I was doing enough at work. And so I was, even though I was giving 120% of what I had, I was still not sure if I was doing enough. And medicine sort of tricks us into thinking that, right? You say you're called to take care of other people. This is your vocation. You need to, those patients need you. There's a nursing shortage. There's a provider shortage. Well, it's not my responsibility to solve the healthcare system's nursing shortage or provider shortage. It's my responsibility to take care of myself and my family and have good boundaries, which at the time I definitely did not. So I think you had an interesting solution to the burnout. So from my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, you quit in the middle of the pandemic and did not have a plan. Tell us about that. This was a weird move for a former people-pleasing type A planner who has an Excel spreadsheet for everything. Um, I was very burned out. And I got to this point where I knew it wasn't sustainable. It was compromising my mental and my physical health. And one morning, my daughter called me stupid after a very terrible night of call where I was sleep deprived. I had a full on like tantrum meltdown. One of my other kids said, I think mom maybe needs a timeout. Like, I think mom maybe needs to go to her room. Uh, And I had never wanted to be put in timeout more than at that moment. Like, if someone had sent me to timeout, I would have stayed for a solid 24 hours in my room, not coming out, not dealing with anything. Um, And in the midst of this sort of break and shift in my mentality, I said to my husband, I have to quit. Um, And we had been talking about this. So I want to make it clear that I didn't quit in a blazing, you know, glorious F you that day, right? I did not do that. I wanted to do that, but I did not do that. Um, 
And he said, go in and resign today. And I said, I don't have time to resign today, which is your first clue that if you are so stressed at work, you cannot have a conversation with someone about quitting, you're doing too much, right? The expectation is unreasonable if that is true for you at work. If you don't have to have time to eat or pee or quit your job, this is a problem. Um, so I said, I don't have time to quit today. I have too many patients. I have too many you know, people in the hospital. I have a surgery. I have this. And he said, okay, we're going to talk about it tonight. We're going to sleep on it. And I quit seven days later. So I gave it a week, a weekend of not working and thought about it. And during that time, let me tell you, I had all of the spreadsheets, right? So I am a money financial person at heart. We have five kids who were getting ready to go to college, three of which were still in daycare. We had bills to pay, right? And my income was contributing to the way that we were living our life. So we broke it down and I did a spreadsheet for if I don't get a job for six, nine, 12, 18 months, right? If I quit and it's the middle of this world ending pandemic and everyone just says like, you're a black sheep, we won't hire you. I make no money for a year and a half. Will we be okay? Not will we be thriving, but will we be okay? And you know, what if I got a part-time job in six months? So we sort of ran through these scenarios and the bottom line was, we did not need my income to make it. And we really didn't need to adjust our lifestyle a whole lot. So I quit. And immediately, seven of my friends who work in medicine messaged me, oh my gosh, I heard you quit. And I'm wondering two things. One, how did you know it was time to quit? And two, you don't need money though? Like, how can you afford to walk away from one half of your family's income? Um, and the answer to that question, the money question is that we had spent the 10 years before that in our marriage diligently planning for some sort of emergency. We didn't know what it would be. We didn't know if it would be a sick parent or a kid that needed extra care or attention, someone breaking their leg and being out of work, right? There's lots of unpredictability in this world. We had diligently paid off our mortgage, been aggressive about saving and investing, and essentially had built up a war chest for a war that we didn't know was going to be me getting burned out and needing to quit my job to save my life, which sounds a little dramatic. But at the time, I was hyperthyroid. I had insomnia. I had anxiety. I couldn't sleep. My resting heart rate was in the 130s. All of these things were happening, and none of them were making me feel any better at my very stressful job. And I had to quit to save myself. Before I quit, I tried to save everybody else. I tried to fix the system. I tried to make everything better. None of it worked. And I eventually just had to say, in order to save myself, in order to preserve my peace and my health and my sanity, I have to walk away. And I could walk away because we didn't need my income the next month or the next week. I, I'm i not sure how many people would be brave enough to do that. In, in, I love that you're a spreadsheet person. I, I love looking at the finances and I'm always thinking about the what ifs with that. But at the same time, walking away from 50% of household income sounds terrifying. So I'm fascinated by the, the courage that I think it took to get there. But I think you've also hit on something really important that this was possible because of 10 years of saving, of planning, and kind of always expecting the unexpected, I guess, is maybe a good way to put it. So what are your thoughts, Tracy, on how other people listening to this can get to that point? And 
you know, we'll stay away from specific recommendations, but I think the key with that is just that you guys, even in good times, it sounds like we're always socking away money or always kind of preparing for something bad or having that emergency fund, even if you didn't know where it was. And I'd love to get your thoughts on how you guys got to that point, because I think that takes an incredible amount of discipline to to save even when you're not saving for something specific. I have realized, you know, that phrase, money doesn't buy happiness. And, there, you know, people are like, well, you know, you can't take it with you and money doesn't buy happiness. What money does buy you is margin. So what money has given us in our life is room between us and catastrophe, right? So if something happens and something changes, I don't want to be on the brink of not being able to pay bills or feed these various kids that we have at home. Um, and so money has created margin. And for me, that it, it's it's not just margin from a money standpoint. It's margin from a time standpoint. It's margin from an energy standpoint. So I, every Saturday morning, religiously have an Instacart order delivered to our home. I haven't set foot in a grocery store in a year and a half, right? And that's a complete luxury that exists because we budget and we drive to vacation and we sacrifice other things because I don't want to spend my Saturdays at the grocery store. I want to spend my Saturdays skiing or hanging out with my kids or on the sideline of a soccer field or nowhere where my children are, where my husband is hanging out with them. All of these things are more of a priority to me than shopping for my own groceries. Um, so, you know, I think it boils down to what are your priorities, meeting your minimum needs with those things. And there often is a season like everyone's listening and they're like, well, that's great for you, but I'm at the not margin part. Like I'm at the part where I don't have all of this margin in my life where every month, every dollar is going somewhere and I don't have room to make this. You can make room based on what you value. So what's most important to you? You know, you don't have to cut out everything. You don't have to never see the inside of a restaurant unless you're working there. Like if that's a value of yours, put it in the budget, plan to spend money on that. That's great. But you can't do all the things. So very few of us, like great income, amazing, wonderful. R rarely can we do every single thing we've ever wanted to do in every single category of the budget. So if you're going to categorize your budget, it's like necessities and then start numbering the things that are not necessities. What's the one thing you would do if you had money above the necessities? Two, three, four, and just walk down the page. I am a big budgeting person. I think you need a plan. I don't drive looking out the rearview mirror, so I don't plan my finances looking at what I spent last month. We make a plan for the coming month, what's coming in, what's going out. And that helps us to know, hey, if we want to do something fun, can we afford this? Almost always the answer is yes, but sometimes it's yes, but. Yes, but y yes, we can fully fund college for our kids, but we can't go to Disney five times a year like some people I know do. Fine. That's fine. You know, that's a priority for us. It depends what matters to you. You know, I uh, I find this very interesting because we started off the conversation um, this exact way where we thought we could make all this money because we're going into the medical field. Little did we know there's there's easier ways to make money than being in medicine, uh, if that's what the goal is. Um, but it's this whole idea of keeping up with the Joneses. Um, this idea that because we're in medicine, that there is this prestige that comes with it and a lot of money, just this endless amount of money. Um, but something that you mentioned, Tracy, really, uh, it brought me into a very therapy mindset. 
uh, saying value systems, right? What do you actually value? Taking inventory of what's important to you. And this is something Mike and I talk about a lot. It's something we find very important is to really dig in, uh, soul search and find out what your value systems are, not comparing it to other people. So can you talk a little bit more about how you're figuring out what your true value systems are? Like, is it going on vacations? Is it spending time with family? Is it your profession alone? Um, how did you and your husband and family figure out what your value system was so that you could really move in that direction? Yeah. So this was a question I got so much at the beginning of my con content creation journey that I actually made a tool called the Core Value Curator, where you walk through a series of things where you figure out what matters most to you. And then you hold up those values against how you're spending your time and your money and your energy and what you're thinking about and what you're worrying about and say, hey, am I on track? Great. If not, what adjustments do I have to make so that I am living in alignment with these values? Um, I would say for me, from like a professional standpoint, when I first graduated school, I was like, what is the coolest specialty, right? What is the specialty where I'm going to do the most exciting things? I thought what you do mattered. And I thought that because that was the question everyone was asking me, right? I was out on rotation. I was going through these and all my preceptors were saying, hey, what specialty do you want to go into? No one asked me, what kind of a lifestyle are you looking for? What kind of a schedule do you want? Do you want to work nights and weekends? Do you want to work overnight shifts? Do you want to have call? Do you want it to be acute care, high stress or outpatient, a different sort of setting? Um, so I used to think, that the biggest predictor of success in medicine was how cool your specialty was. <laughs> that was 10 plus years ago. Now I have realized, like, if we're saying the BMW is no longer the status symbol in healthcare, working in medicine, I think your schedule is your status symbol, right? And that's what everyone asks. How's your job? Nights, weekends, call, right? They'll say it in the job listing. No nights, no weekends, no call, right? Because that's what we have realized over time. Or Personally, for me, that matters more than the content of the medicine that I'm doing right now. The other thing I want to say about values is this is not set in stone. So what I valued when I was a new graduate provider at 23 when I was single is not the same thing that I value now. And that's normal. It's normal for these things to shift as we move through different seasons of life. So this is not a set it and forget it look in 60 years and see if we did it right, but a constantly evolving, hey, when my kids are young, I'm really going to value memories and experiences and time with them. But when they're away at college, I'm probably going to value memories and experiences and time without them. And both of those things are okay in different seasons of life. It's not right or wrong, and it shouldn't look like anyone else's. It has to be yours because if you're living your life for someone else's values, you're going to end up resentful and disappointed that you accidentally lived someone else's life instead of yours. Yeah, that's the that's the thing we always drive uh, the point we always try to drive home is keeping up with the Joneses will really make you miserable. I love the idea of time being the new status symbol. I really, really like that. And the Instacart delivery, I think, is a great example of that, where the opportunity cost is that if you don't have you know, the, the financial ability to say, okay, I'm going to spend the extra $30 on Instacart, you're spending two to three hours at the grocery store. We all you know, most healthcare professionals work in a field where there is ample opportunity to work overtime. There's never going to be a shortage of 
extra shifts for healthcare. And if it brings more balance or value to your life to maybe pick up one additional shift per month in exchange for never grocery shopping again, that might be a really good exchange of time versus value. So I love that example because I don't think this necessarily just has to be, hey, everyone, get rid of your avocado toast, get rid of your $7 lattes, because I think so often financial advice ends up being a little bit too reductive. I, I love Starbucks. I, I think there's incredible psychological value of having these little daily luxuries that reward you. Now, if you're doing Starbucks every day, it does add up. But if it's bringing you an emotional benefit that is worth three grand a year, then I'm supportive of it. I think the key is for people to have those thoughts, to rationalize through that and say, okay, is Starbucks worth three grand a year to me or is it something I can cut back? But I just love the grocery delivery as a as an opportunity to to highlight that because it, it is. It's such a inefficient use of your time as someone who can make a very good wage as a PA to walk around the grocery aisles. Unless you enjoy it. So if you love meal planning and you love the grocery store, like go for it. It is not my favorite place to be. So it is something that I was like, no. No, thank you. So true. And I think the other thing that is really popping into my mind as we're talking about this is what is your enough point? So there is always more work to be done. There is always more money that you can earn. But do you make enough now? Do you make enough to sustain a lifestyle that feels good to you where you get to live out those values in a way that looks different and feels different than anyone else's life? If you already make enough, Sometimes it's just rearranging the seats and making sure that we're funding the things that we want to fund and not necessarily, I have to work more, I have to earn more, because more is just more. More is not necessarily better. So true. I think so often we always, in American culture especially, we always look at finances as something where we need to just continue to expand the inputs. We need more more income. We need to get that next promotion. And truly, I think the people that are wealthy or stay wealthy are the ones that control their spend not necessarily the people that are always crushing it and making tons of money. So I love it. I, I love the concept of enough. I, I can't remember if you and I have talked about enough lately, but it's been on my mind. I, I love the idea of figuring that out because it really is a values discussion, right? It's figuring out what do I value and what do I want to put my resources behind? Time, money, energy. So with that, Tracy, I'd love to shift a little bit and stick with this topic of opportunity cost within healthcare. And maybe I'll frame it with a little bit of a personal story. In 2017, I switched from a salaried employment structure to one where I went to productivity-based. And it was a little bit scary making that transition because you're betting on yourself. You're assuming that your productivity will continue to rise and that you're going to have your income then be directly tied to your productivity. And it has worked very well for me. But in 2020, it was a little bit scary because... As with so many parts of healthcare, my visits probably got cut in half. So my income in 2020 dropped by a huge amount, almost by 50%. And it was still certainly stressful. But thankfully, we were able to navigate COVID and we didn't cut back on any retirement savings. We didn't cut back on anything really at all, in part because we had been very disciplined in our spend. We had been very disciplined in budgeting and making sure that we had um, a really, really wide margin in our budget for income to make sure that we could sustain that variability, knowing that with my salary or with my uh, my compensation being variable, we needed to prepare for the unprepared, unpredictable. So I'd love to have you maybe talk about um, what financial management priorities 
and how that can play into opportunity costs. Because I think so often in healthcare, especially, we maybe are stuck in jobs that we don't like, or maybe we're passing on these really, really exciting opportunities that do kind of fit what we're trying to do career-wise, but maybe come with more risk. Uh, yeah. So for me, I see that margin that you're describing, like when you're even gesturing with your hands, like this wide margin, that is the size of your parachute, right? So all of these opportunities will come along. Should you jump? Should you not jump? And maybe it's like a little step, right? So maybe it's a little step off a cliff and you're like, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to break my femurs when I hit the ground, right? Or maybe it's this giant leap where you're like, I'm going to walk away from this six-figure income to take a $40,000 pay cut to go to a startup with massive upside potential, but maybe it fails, right? But maybe the upside potential doesn't materialize. The amount of money that you have in savings, in non-retirement investments, that is your parachute. And the bigger your parachute, I actually have no idea about the physics of parachuting. So I would like to say that as I am using this analogy, the bigger your parachute, the slower you fall to a point. I don't really know that that is actually physics accurate, but it gives you this sense of comfort that you're like, hey, if I jump and I don't land it, I'm not going to die, right? That it gives you this sense of comfort that you just have something else between you and failure. And I use that word sort of cautiously because trying something and deciding it didn't work is not a failure. Like I'm not a failed urology PA because I quit urology. I'm a urology PA who did an amazing job and then decided to go another direction. That's a normal part of having a career and of making a path. It's not linear. You don't get one job and stay for 30 years and retire from that job. That model is dead. We're not doing that anymore. Yeah, I think when you have, let's say maybe three to six month emergency fund, because that's generally, if you go talk to someone who is in the finance world, that's usually the recommendation. If you have that three to six month emergency fund, then that MSL job that has immense upside, but also may lay you off three months in if they have a bad quarter or going to a startup where you get stock options in lieu of additional compensation. I think those career jumps are less scary. And there's there's so much opportunity to move ahead in healthcare. And we've talked about it and Tracy, you've talked about it on your platform as well. Uh, healthcare is changing. There's there's just an incredible opportunity to be creative in your employment, whether that be working clinically, but maybe diversifying your sources of income um, through telemedicine or through 1099 work, or even leaving the clinical space and doing something different, whether it's health tech or writing or industry. And a lot of times those transitions are scary and uncertain because we've spent our entire life dedicated our entire you know education and formative years to becoming the best clinician we can be. And pivoting away from that can be terrifying. But I think having that emergency fund, having that financial security, having a plan can make it uh, feasible instead of um, improbable. Sometimes it's not about the money, right? So, so uh, one time I took a contractor position, um, which just happened to be, I was sitting next to a surgeon in the PACU who asked me, uh, how much money do plastic surgery PAs make? And at the time I was working in urology and I said, I don't know, but I can give you some data. Give me your email. I'll send you some numbers. Um, and I kept on charting and I kept on doing my job. And about three minutes later, I said, wait, why? Why are you asking this question? Right. And he said, oh, I'm looking to hire a PA to cover my call in the ER. And I immediately said, I'll do it. And he's like, wait, what? You have a job. I said, well, I can't do it between the hours of 7 a.m. and 5 p.m., but I can cover your night call. I can cover your weekends. You know, I can tell you my availability and you can base your call schedule off of that. 
And he was like, great. And then he, you know, emails me, I email him and he says, how much do you want to make? And I'm like, listen, this man has one car for every day of the week, right? He is not hurting for money. So I say 10 times my call rate at the schedule at the hospital, what I'm making. And he says, sure. Like I almost said double, right? I almost said double because I was like, I don't want to ask for too much, right? Um, so don't be afraid to just try it. Worst case scenario, you do it, you don't like it, you give them notice and you stop, you know, it's not going to hurt anything. Um, and that went on to develop into a full-time turned part-time position where I now work. You never know what opportunity just saying, yes, like I'll try it. I'll give it a shot. I can do that. Right. That is true for everyone listening in so many things you've never considered that you could do. What another great example of opportunity cost, though, because you were able to negotiate from a position of power. You already had a job. You didn't need it. Uh, so when he approached you or when you saw this opportunity, you could kind of throw a crazy number out there. And if he said no, it was no skin off your nose because you were already working your day job. I've had similar experiences where with consulting, I'm thankfully getting busy enough that I turn down a lot of work. And because of that, I very often, if someone has something that they present, it's like, eh, you know, I don't know if I can fit this in. I'll put a number on it that is high enough that if they say yes, I will make it work. But if they say no, that's fine. I don't I don't need to add it in. And I think that's a great example, again, of opportunity cost, where if you need the work to pay the bills, if you need the work to make sure that you can put groceries on the table for the million kids at home, then you probably can't throw this lofty number at them. You have to give a number that you think is more reasonable that they will say yes to. So that's a it's a wonderful example of how you can advance your career if you have the freedom uh, to maybe be more aggressive, even if they say no. We should sometime talk more about that fear that comes along with this, uh, this opportunity cost, because I hear both of you say words like um, uh, afraid, scared, terrifying, uh, because it is scary to make these types of jumps. But Mike, you just mentioned really negotiating from a power position. I recently was just able to help um, one of my mentees land a position, but that when that was exciting enough, then they got into the negotiation and it wasn't my job. So he was asking me, how do we ne negotiate this and what should I ask for? Um, what benefits could I negotiate? What should I ask for salary? It wasn't my job. So I got to really play with it almost like it was a video game and I had no fear. And he got everything he asked for after they went back about back and forth about five times. And so some of this is really just we don't make decisions based off of fear. So how do we reduce that fear and live a little bit more loosely, but not dangerously? So just to tease a little bit, John, but in a couple of weeks, we've actually got another guest coming on. And the premise of that episode is going to be how to maximize your compensation and how leaving jobs and switching often is going to accelerate compensation. We're staying in one job, even if that is beneficial from a healthcare perspective, because we become more competent clinically the longer we stay in one role. But when we do that, there's an opportunity cost because we may be trading um, compensation gains. So that'll be something we're going to talk about very soon. So stay tuned. Well, Tracy, I'd love to maybe start wrapping up this topic and then we're going to switch over to some personal items, but I want to give you the floor to to give any concluding thoughts on opportunity cost and anything you want to leave with our listeners regarding that. Yeah, so 
any minute, any hour that you spend doing anything is an hour that you can't spend doing anything else. And you can never get it back. So time is this weird thing where it's not a renewable resource, right? We can make more money. Um, we can even, you know, you could argue create more energy in the way that we hold ourselves, but we can't make more time. And I think as parents with young kids, particularly that time, it just becomes so obvious. Like, you know, if you scroll back through your iPhone photos, you're going to see pictures of your kids one year ago. And you're like, look at them. Look at their tiny chubby cheeks. And they look so little. And, you know, they've grown so much in the last 365 days. And then you think, have I grown in the last 365 days? Like, what growing am I doing? You know, how am I maximizing those moments? Because I can't make more than 24 hours in a day, but I can make the moments matter more. So long, fat minutes where you're just savoring the time that you're spending with the people that you love, those minutes matter more than the minutes that you spend at work. And just like putting down your phone and like, you know, being present where you are, whether that's at work or at home, is going to enrich your life and it's going to make you feel better. Honestly, even if you make no other changes in your schedule and how you're living those values and how you're prioritizing time and money, being present in the moment automatically makes the moment better. Tracy, I love what you just said. It's it's something that I struggle with more than anything is living in the moment. Uh, I'm naturally a very anxious person. And it's something I really try to work through. What I find out more and more often is that I get more anxious when I'm not living where I'm at. Like I'll be sitting with my family watching a show and I'm thinking, and I've got all these other things for work to do. I've got this interview prep to go. My men, my mentee's asking for this. Then I take a step back and I say, wait a second, where am I right now? Um, something I've noticed was when you're in the room looking and just notif- noticing and speaking out three colors that you see or three objects that you see and say like, no, I'm here right now. Let's just live in this moment because I. this is why we really work, right, guys? Um, I should say the only reason why we work, but the reason why we work is to better our lives. And if we had a spouse or a partner or children um, or even pets, whatever we find uh, to be the lovers of our life, the reason why we made money is to spend more time doing those things. So why live in those moments if we're just thinking about how can we have more of these moments? Yeah, I once had a guest on my show say mindfulness is being in the present moment not worrying about what's happening or worrying about what's going to happen. So not looking back, not looking forward. I think there's a role for looking back and forward, but in the moment, focusing on that moment. I had recently been retelling the story of when I burned out and my daughter came out and called me stupid and I was so stressed out and I had this meltdown. And this morning she comes out, she comes around the corner and now she's much older now than she was when this burnout story happened. And I was working on something for my own podcast. So same situation. I'm sitting in the living room. I've got my laptop on my knees, but I'm not burned out. I'm not stressed to the max. I'm just getting something done before my kids wake up. She comes around the corner and she goes to climb in my lap. And I immediately set my laptop to the side and closed it, which in the moment when I was so burned out, I couldn't close it. I was too busy working. I was too busy answering calls. And she climbed into my lap. And actually, all three of my little kids did this this morning. And I thought, they're so big, their heads are like where my head is when they're sitting on my lap. Like they're no longer a little baby with their head on my chest. Like time is passing before my eyes. And that moment would have been one that I missed 
when I was so burned out and stressed out at work. Those moments are happening whether you're present for them or not. So really, really matters. It's more important than the other stuff. I love that. I think that's a great spot to finish. So Tracy, if you've listened to the show at all, we always like to wrap up with personal items. And the reason we do this is exactly what you're describing. But this is such a great segue as we're just talking about this and balance. And the reason we do personal items is healthcare is all consuming and we want to retain our humanity through all of this and make sure that even in a career development podcast, we're talking about what makes us human. So Tracy, if you want to go first, do you have a personal item, something fun or interesting? What are you reading? What are you doing? Otherwise, John or I can go first to uh, take you off the spot. Yeah, so I was prepared for this, so I'm ready. Uh, (laughs) So years ago, I read this book called Unicorn Space, which the target audience is definitely working women or overwhelmed women or moms. Um, And the premise of the book is that we need unicorn space. We need this space to be able to express ourselves, to be creative, to enjoy, to have a thing that's just for us, that's not taking your kids somewhere or serving your spouse in some way. And my unicorn space is skiing. We finally got some snow in Pennsylvania. It is finally winter for the first time in what feels like years. We have already skied something like 15 days this season. We are aggressive about getting on the slopes. I love love, love to teach my kids to ski. And my life's mission is to be able to just travel the world, have them skiing in all sorts of different countries. We finally got the last one off the harness and skiing on her own. But even more than that, I love skiing by myself. I ski Mondays and Tuesdays when I'm out of the office with all these older retired guys. I'm the only person under the age of 40 on the slopes, which makes me feel very blessed to be outside. It gives me life. It gives me energy. Everyone needs some unicorn space and skiing is mine. I love that. I listen, I I I have a, a little story to tell Mike as well as my my thing. So something that Carolyn she and she just texted me to to remind me because I thought this was so funny. So we had the PA blueprint on um and we were talking about different types of like how to or rather I think it was the CPA ex- uh, episode actually. We were talking about S corps and LLCs and how so my kids love listening to podcasts at night and sometimes they will listen to our podcast, Mike. It helps them fall asleep. It, it really does. It's so uh, Carolyn was telling me, she said, yeah, I was going by their room and all of a sudden I'm listening to these, uh, these guys talk and I'm thinking, what are these guys, what are these kids listening to? Because she had recently gone on pod, the Google podcast app and saw that. It was linked to mine and I had some random podcasts on there. So she's walking by the room and she hears. So this is how you start um, an, an escort company. You, um, <gasps> she's like, what? She runs in, turns it. It, she, it was S Corp. She was talking about S Corp. So she thought my, our kids were listening to some mature podcast. So <laughs> parents out there listening, like really listen. It's I might slur my words every once in a while. I talk quick. It's it's S Corp. Uh, talking about books. Uh, first of all, I'm reading a new book. Uh, now, this is more for pleasure, but it's called Red Rising. I'm into very dystopian books. Um, just read Dune. Uh I talked about that nonstop. Like I could go door to door telling people about Dune and asking, giving them free books. But uh, I'm loving this new book. But Mike, we were talking about Atomic Habits, about starting that one. And I started 
listen to the audible first because I'm waiting for the book to come in. And I, you know, I like TikTok. So they were talking about red flags. And one of the things that came up was red flags for uh, men with their books on their shelves. Like if you go to their house, what books are on their shelves? One of the ones this girl said was red flag was atomic habits. So Mike, I think we've got some talking to do outside. I don't know why it's a red flag, but you don't want a man that you motivated. You don't want him to be, you know. No, the thing is, we're both married with kids. I don't red flags don't exist anymore. I don't. I don't think I would put red uh, atomic habits in the same category as Andrew Tate. I'm I'm liking it so far, and I'm realizing I've got some habits to work out. Good. So I'll finish up. So John, I'm going to actually make my personal item kind of for both of us. So my wife is going out of town. She's also a PA, and she's going to a conference in Arizona, and she's doing some incredible hikes in Sedona. So I am very jealous and. Tracy, uh, we uh, are very, very outdoor focused in this podcast, and I continue to keep a mental list of guests that are very outdoorsy so that down the road, if we ever do like a White Coats of the Round Table ski retreat or something, we'll know who to call. So my wife's going to Arizona next this week, and she's going to do some great hiking. So I uh, bravely invited John to come over to watch playoff football this weekend, and John, I think, is going to bring the kids so we are going to have eight boys, 10 and under, all together. And John and I somehow believe that we're going to also sit and watch football with eight children, 10 and under, roaming the house free. So what could go wrong? I think it'll be great. So we're going to order some pizza. We're going to load them up with caffeine and sugar and uh, just turn them loose on the basement and hope that they don't kill each other. But I'm really intrigued to see how this goes of uh, us having eight boys all together well, Tracy, before we wrap up, uh, how can people find you? So if they want to find more of your work online, uh, where can they find you and how can they engage with you? Yeah, so my podcast is called The PA Is In. We talk about all things burnout, finance, managing time and money and building boundaries. That's on all platforms and YouTube. You can connect with me on LinkedIn, sign up for our LinkedIn newsletter or follow me on Instagram at Mrs. Tracy Bingman. Very cool. And I encourage everyone to check it out. I, obviously, this has been an awesome conversation, Tracy, and I, I really love the work you're doing out there. And I think you're taking a very bold stance on pursuing financial independence, but also just paths to reduce burnout and, and really take control of your career. So thank you, everyone, for joining us. This is White Coats the Round Table. If you like what you hear, consider leaving us a review. If you don't like what you hear, definitely don't review us. You can find us on all the streaming platforms follow us so that you don't miss a thing. Otherwise, this is John and Mike, and we'll talk to you next week. 